On April 14th of this year, uh, just about six weeks ago, I stood here and preached a sermon from Matthew chapter 28 and laid out a general threefold vision uh, that I would like to see our church adopt with a threefold emphasis on biblical worship, discipleship, and missions. And today we start a new summer sermon series on the first of those emphases on biblical worship. And so I hope over the next several weeks as we look at biblical worship, journeying together through the Old Testament book of Malachi, that all of us will be invited to stop and reflect and examine on our own worship of God individually and as a church. So who or what do you worship? We all worship someone or something because someone or something is of primary importance in our lives. And that someone or something provides the foundational framework for which we navigate through life and make varying decisions individually in life. And it's probably a safe assumption to say that on any given Sunday here at Meadowbrook Baptist Church, the vast majority of people in this place claim to worship God, the God of the Bible, the only true God. But if we're going to worship God, then we have to rightly know and understand who God is. And so as we look at Malachi for the next several weeks, I hope we look at it through that lens. And every time we open Scripture, I hope we, we desire for God to instruct us and to correct us and to broaden us and, and to inform us about who He is, the primary subject of Scripture, the one who created all things, the object of our worship is God. And there are numerous benefits to studying Scripture the way we're going to do it for the next several weeks, journeying through a book of the Bible together. But one of the great benefits to studying Scripture this way is that we're forced to deal with all of it rather than simply picking and choosing perhaps messages or or thoughts uh, or or, or readings that uh, sit well with our understanding or even our message that we're to present. And this morning's passage, and the reason I mentioned that, is this morning's passage um, is a perfect example of both the challenge and the benefit of studying Scripture this way. Because this is not a passage that, that most preachers and teachers are going to run to to be the first, the first passage to preach because it presents an idea that at least on some level is unsettling. But we want to approach God's word with an open mind, inviting him to instruct us every time we open it. So before we jump right in, as I know you're all eager to see now what that passage is about, let's back up and let's catch the context of Malachi. And let's do that by beginning with verse 1. Let's read Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 together. Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament. An oracle, the word of the Lord 
to Israel through Malachi. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, we don't know much about this man, Malachi. In fact, this is the only place in the Old Testament that Malachi is mentioned. Yet, God used him to write this book. His name means my messenger. And that's a fitting uh, meaning to his name because that's exactly what he does here. We see here that he is delivering this message from God to Israel, this oracle, this word, or this burden from God to the people of Israel. Now, during the time in which Malachi wrote and delivered these messages to the people of God, the nation of Israel, Israel had just come back and settled in their land again after the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian exile. And if you know much about Old Testament history or even just history in general in that part of the world, you know that the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, was conquered by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century B.C. And so God used this other nation, this pagan nation, the Babylonians, to exercise his judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness. And so King Nebuchadnezzar and his men came in and they they captured much of uh, the Jewish people and they, they, they brought them into exile outside of Judah and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and the priestly sacrificial system of worship had, had been temporarily uh, demolished on hold. The temple was gone. And so Malachi writes, after all this takes place, because thankfully, although God had, had judged Israel for their lack of obedience and their unfaithfulness, and we read about uh, this all throughout the Old Testament prophetic books of, of God announcing his judgment, repent, or I'm going to judge you. And so he does. He exercises judgment to these pagan nations. But his plans were bigger than that. He had called his people Israel. And so he had, he had drawn them back. He had a purpose of restoration. And so he brought them back into the southern kingdom of Judah. And the nation was restored. And we read about these events in the, the prophetic books of Haggai and Zechariah. And thanks to their ministries and the, the leadership of God, the temple had been rebuilt in Jerusalem. And the priestly ministry was reinstated. And Malachi writes, after all of this, somewhere in the late 5th century B.C., probably between 430 and 420 B.C., shortly after the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so external circumstances looked pretty good, much better than they did during the exile. They're back in the land. The temple's rebuilt. The priestly ministry is, is moving forward. It's going on. But true worship, as God intends, had not been restored. Outwardly, things looked good. But the people were practicing a, a routine and superficial worship of God that, that he was not pleased with. And so this is why he spoke to Israel through Malachi to confront the superficial worship. And Malachi does this in this interrogation and, and reply style where he delivers these six messages or six sermons to challenge the people of Israel to, to turn back to God and to worship him as he intended. 
And so let's look at the first of these messages now together. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? This is an interrogation and reply style. In other words, Malachi is, is, is reading the response, the thoughts of the Israelites under the inspiration of God, and, and he's putting to words what they're thinking. So he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And the Lord replies, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Verse 4, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. The continuing love of God for his people is the beginning of our worship of God. Let me say that again. The continuing love of God for his people is the beginning, the starting point of our worship of God. Biblical worship begins not with us, but with God. And because worship, as God intended, begins with God, it's important that we have a right understanding of God. And so we desire God to inform us and to instruct us and to teach us through his word what he is like. And I want to borrow an illustration to to emphasize the importance of this. In a biographical account of Pastor George Buttrick, Thomas Long has written this. George Buttrick was from 1927 to 1954 pastor of the Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York. One week he had been off on a speaking engagement and was flying back to New York City. On the plane he had a pad and a pencil and he was making some notes for next Sunday's sermon. The man seated next to him was eyeing him with curiosity Finally, the curiosity got the best of him, and so he said to Buttrick, I hate to disturb you, but you're obviously working very hard on something, but what in the world are you working on? Oh, I'm a Presbyterian minister, said Buttrick. I'm working on my sermon for Sunday. Oh, religion, said the man. I don't like to get all caught up in the ins and outs and complexities of religion. I like to keep it simple. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule. That's my religion. I see, said Buttrick. And what do you do? I'm an astronomer. I teach at the university. Oh yes, said Buttrick. Astronomy. I don't like to get all caught up in the ins and outs and complexities of astronomy. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, that's my astronomy. (laughs) Now I share that to communicate that the God that we worship, the God of the Bible, is a complex God. 
And every time that we desire for him to teach us and every time we approach his word, we need to do so in humility, inviting him to challenge the way that we think about him and even to correct the way that we think about him and to know that that's okay because he's God and we're not. And so four truths from this passage on God's love, four foundational truths of God's love that I want us to see this morning from Malachi chapter 1. Truths that may validate what we think about God or they may uh, inform what we think about God or they may change what we think about God, but that's okay because that's what the Bible does. So truth number one is that God's love for his people endures forever. God's love for his people endures forever. Look back at verse 2, the first part of verse 2. This is God speaking to Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. And the verb tense that's used here in in verse 2, I have loved you, is a present perfect verb. And the reason that's important for us is because it describes an action that has taken place in the past but continues into the future. It can be traced back to a definable moment when God loved his people, Israel. But it's an action that will remain and an act that will remain forever. Some of you that were here in November of this past year on the Sunday right before Thanksgiving, we looked at Psalm 136. And that's that psalm that had that refrain that repeated itself over and over. His love endures forever. Describing all these acts of God and these attributes of God and then this this refrain, his love endures forever. And if you were here that Sunday, I know you, you remember that because because I made you repeat it over and over 26 times as as we read that psalm together. But that's describing the love of God for his people. It endures forever. It has no end. It is abiding. It is continual. It is ongoing. It is steadfast. The love of God never fails. This is the same love and faithfulness of God that, that we've already sung about this morning, that his compassions never fail. Great is his faithfulness. And we read about that in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 that read this way. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And God's love for us as his children, as his people is the beginning point of our worship of him. And when we understand that love, the natural response is to to bow before him in praise and to respond to him in worship. His love leads to our worship of him. God's love for his people endures forever. Truth number two. Let's look back at verse 2. And this is where things get to be, to be a little bit more unsettling for some. But that's okay. Let's look at God's word. Let's invite his word to, to instruct us here and to give us clarity here. That's what we want, want to take place. 
So look back at verse two, beginning in the second part of verse two. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Truth number two, God's love is revealed by his choice of his people. God's love is revealed by his choice of his people. Now in this context and really throughout scripture, especially the Old Testament, names of ancestors are used to describe an entire tribe or an entire people group or nation. And so Jacob here is used to describe Jacob's descendants, Israel. Esau here is used to describe Esau's descendants, the Edomites, another nation, another people group. And so what's being communicated here is, is God is saying in some form or fashion, I have, I've loved Israel and I have not loved in the same way the Edomites. Also important for our understanding of this is what the, the words love and hate in this context mean. And love in this context and in other places, uh, often throughout the Old Testament, love essentially means to choose. And hate essentially means not to choose or to reject in some way. And so in some way, this passage is saying that God has, has chosen a, a people for himself and he's not chosen another people in the same way. And I want to pause for a moment and say that, that this particular subject matter in churches and in theolo theology circles has been a subject of debate. Some friendly debate some not-so-friendly debate. And the reality is, it's a mystery to us. God is mysterious, and that's okay. But to, to determine how we are to describe God's role in our salvation and our role in our salvation is a mystery. We can't, none of us could fully or adequately explain it to where we could walk away saying that we fully understand it. And to back up a little bit, I was, I was taken aback a little bit um, during the beginning stages of the, the interview process for the pastor position here at Meadowbrook because one of the very first questions that I was asked to answer, to respond to, was describe the relationship, something like this. I'm not sure that I'm wording it exactly right. Describe the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as it relates to salvation. <laughs> That's a tough question. <laughs> yeah. God is sovereign and we're responsible. And while it's okay for us to, to debate these things lovingly and biblically, and rationally, we should never fight or break unity or break fellowship over these secondary and tertiary issues of our salvation. It is a mystery. None of us would come to saving knowledge of, of God through the gospel without God revealing himself to us, without God drawing us to do that. But at the same time, every human being is still responsible and the same thing was true in the Old Testament, that God had chosen to reveal himself in a certain way to Israel, in a way that he had not other nations. A casual glance of biblical history makes that 
obvious. But at the same time, they were all responsible. All are responsible. Even Israel was responsible. And so God's love is revealed by his choice of his people. But this doesn't mean that he doesn't love all in the way that we often understand and think of all. What this doesn't mean is that God has a hatred like we think of hatred for people that aren't his children. John 3.16 says clearly, For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. 1 Timothy 2.4 makes it very clear that God desires for all men to know him and to be saved by him and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But at the same time, Scripture is clear that God has a, a special or covenantal love with his people that's different from his love for the rest of the world. And this is still uncomfortable for us. This is still unsettling for us. And, and I think the primary reason is because we don't have a very biblical understanding of our own sin, what it means to be sinful, what it means to be disobedient, what it means to have rebelled against God. We sung about that this morning too, about God take away our bent towards sinning. And the reality is that we all have a bent towards sinning. We're all fallen. We've all rebelled against God. And only God can take our, our slavery to sin, our desire to sin away from us. But because of our sin before God, we are all deserving, fully deserving of the wrath and judgment of God. This is clearly spelled out in Scripture. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20 says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages or the payment of sin is death. This is where we are, all of us, all of mankind, before God, past, present, and future. We're in sin. We're in rebellion. We've turned our backs on God. We've followed our own way. And because of that, we all deserve the judgment of God, the eternal wrath of God. That is what we deserve. And that's, that's bothersome to most of us because when it comes to eternity, for most of us, our default position is salvation. We think somehow that, that all good people, as if anyone were good, deserves to to be saved in the end, to spend eternity with God in the end. And that, that's not biblical. That's not true. We deserve the judgment of God. And if we don't understand that, we've missed the gospel. We've missed the grace of God. Because the flip side of that is the second part of those two Romans passages that, that I just mentioned. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, And are justified Freely by his grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus. That's the whole point of grace. It is, it is undeserved. We haven't earned it. God has given it to us. The flip side of Romans 6.23, for, for, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift or the free gift of God is salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord or eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, imagine that you were in some sort of 
horrific accident or disaster, a crash or a natural disaster, maybe a a tornado or a hurricane, or we could even say maybe a, a terrorist attack, and that you were the only one left alive, wherever you were, whether it's in a car or a plane or, or maybe a household or a neighborhood, you were the only one that somehow escaped alive. It was deadly. It was devastating. You didn't survive because somehow you were more worthy or, or because you were better. But you only survived by the grace of God. And the same thing that we could say in a physical situation like this that often evokes praise of God, we could say in a spiritual situation as well. That we've only, anyone that is saved has only been saved by the grace of God and the appropriate response to that salvation by the grace of God is worship of God because he has displayed a love that is undeserving. God is the beginning of our worship of God. The love of God for his people, this great love of God for his people is the beginning of our worship of God. Two more truths that I want us to see from this passage. We're gonna move much more quickly on these next two. Truth number three, look back at verse three. It says, but Esau I've hated and I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, or the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. Truth number three is that God's love results in the protection of of his people. God's love results in the protection of his people. The Edomites and other pagan nations in that time experienced the judgment and the wrath of God in a way that Israel did not. Now Israel did experience the judgment of God. This was the whole reason for the exile. But he had bigger plans to restore them, to call them for a certain purpose. And so that's what he did. Not because they deserved it, but because of his grace, because of his love, because of his never-failing compassion on his people. And it's in light of the judgment of the enemies of God that we see the magnitude of the love of God and the care of God and the protection of God for his people. And this is a love and a protection that that results in praise. And so the right response in that time to Malachi's teaching, Malachi's reminder at the beginning of this, of this book, this prophetic book, this, this series on what it looks like to rightly be devoted to and rightly worship God, at the beginning of all that, of what that looks like, he answers the question, why? You do all that, you rightly worship God, You're rightly devoted to God because he has loved you. And so this reminder should have sparked praise and proper living for Israel in that day. And the same thing should be true for us as the church today. Because just like surrounding nations and other people tried to eliminate God's people in the past, the world is opposed to God's people and what it looks like to follow God today. We see that clearly some places and sometimes and other places not so much. But it's a reminder in this 
This is a reminder from God's word that that God will continue to protect and care for his people, for his church, not only in this world, but forever. They will be called a wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord, but not so the people of God. So God's love results in the protection of his people, and this leads us into the fourth and final truth. We see it in verse 5. That God's love is revealed in his judgment on the wicked. God's love is revealed in his judgment on the wicked. Look back at verse 5. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And to the people of God, ultimately, God's judgment on the wicked, those that oppose God, those that oppose the people of God, those that oppose the things of God, to the people of God, God's judgment on them is ultimately a blessing. We see this throughout Scripture. We saw it in Psalm 139 when David asked God to to slay his enemies, his wicked enemies. We see it throughout the book of Revelation when the people of God, the church that is under severe and intense persecution from the world is is longing, is waiting for God's judgment, God's return and and final and, and eternal judgment on the wicked. And this greatness of God, God is great. And this greatness of God will will extend beyond Israel. It will not just be known to the to his people, but it will extend across the earth. He will be known among the nations. And if you know God today, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, if you've received forgiveness of your sins and eternal life in him, if you know God, then you owe God a great deal of gratitude and praise because he has revealed his love to you. He has allowed you and worked so that you know that truth, so that you've heard that message and really ultimately Convicted you in your heart so that you respond to it. So if you know salvation in Christ, if I know salvation in Christ, then Christ deserves my life. He deserves my faithfulness, my obedience, my devotion. And if you don't know Christ today, if you don't know that love of God that that lasts forever, that's been extended to you through through his grace, that's been extended to you through the the perfect sacrifice of his son on a cross, taking the penalty that only you and only I deserve. If you don't know that love of God, then cry out to God today where you are in your sin, trusting in him for salvation. The Bible says clearly that whoever believes. Mark chapter 16, verse 16. Whoever believes will receive eternal life, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. I hope you're seeing this morning from Malachi chapter 1 that our worship of God must first begin with God and our understanding of God. It is because he has loved us that we're devoted to him. And John got it Exactly right in 1 John 4, 19, when he said, we love because he has first loved us. The continuing love of God for his people is the beginning of our worship of God. 
Because God has loved us, because God has made himself known to us, because God has revealed the magnitude of his love and his grace and his mercy upon us through the gospel of Christ, let's respond now by worshiping him together. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true, that it's everlasting, that it's convicting, that it's challenging, that it instructs, that it rebukes, that it trains us what it means to live for you. And Lord, I pray that your word and your, by your spirit would continue to speak to all of us and continue to direct us to what proper worship looks like. So, Lord, this morning we acknowledge that, that we don't worship you to somehow be accepted by you. We don't worship you because it makes us look good in your eyes or anybody else's eyes. We worship you because you've loved us and because you're deserving of our devotion and our faithfulness and our love. Lord, remind us of that today. May you be glorified, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.